I've got a story to read to you. Hot dog from Luke 2, starting with verse 8. And in that region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring to you good news of a great joy which will come to all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them in, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying which had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard, who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, and it had been told them. Word of God. Amen. People of God. Good morning. We come to... Uh, our third installment in our Gift of Yes series, we've been uh, through Advent and Christmas um, talking about uh, the gift of yes and um, the yeses that we hear resound through this Christmas story. The people who say yes to God's invitation and how uh, their yeses are things that, um, that can inspire us and shape our response to God in this season. <clears throat> so I want to invite you to go to God in prayer with me. God, as we come to you in this moment, we pray that you would be present to us, <clears throat> that you would move among us and stir us just as you stirred those shepherds to notice you at work in the world, to believe that we have been drawn into the work you are doing, to give us words to speak with joy that which we have seen. We ask these, our prayers, in the holy name of the one for whom we are waiting. Amen. To really get a hold of the shepherd's yes, you have to do away with your romantic notions about sheep herding. When Katie and I lived in, in England, uh, you know, there was this very, you know, very quaint green hillsides and, you know, uh, how, many how many times I almost wrecked the car driving down the road because Katie would see a lamb hopping along a, a hillside and she would shriek because they, they were so cute. Uh, and, you know, and you see you know, the shepherd in his little hat and his knee-high boots and it's all very rustic and quaint. But do you know what kind of people were shepherds in the first century? They were the kind of people who enjoyed spending long hours away 
days or weeks at a time from all other human beings. They enjoyed spending all their time in the company of animals and their predators instead of other human beings. Can you imagine for a minute, close your eyes and breathe deep, what a person who spent that much time outside without the benefits of modern hygiene must have smelled like in the first century. Generally, uh, shepherds were people who were viewed with suspicion in the first century. They were like biker gangs. They were drifters, vagabonds, degenerates. They wandered from place to place. They had no permanence in their lives. You know, they didn't have all the stuff that means credibility. They didn't have a mortgage. They didn't have insurance. They didn't have a garage. Any of the other things that really mean uh, that you've uh, agreed to go along with the flow of how we do things. And apparently, when they did find themselves back in town and around people, they were known to be a bit awkward or unsocial, which you might expect for people who spend all their time with sheep. And so the status and the reputation of these folks in the first century is essential to understanding the story and to understanding their yes. I suppose if I were making a modern parallel, I would say that these are something like undocumented farm workers. And it is this status that is both the greatest obstacle to their saying yes to God's appearance to them. It's the greatest obstacle, and it is the thing that makes them most uniquely equipped to say yes. Because first, they have to come to believe that, that angels are visiting them. That they, of all people, are hearing directly from God which I can imagine being difficult to accept or really believe to be true when you spend most of your time operating under the assumption that nobody really wants you around. And that the only real company or kinship you have in the world are the others in the field with you, the few people and the animals. So they have to believe that that God is appearing to them. And to say yes to this invitation from God to go and see what God is doing, despite all the reinforcement that they have received, that they are just about the last people on earth that God would ever show up to. That they are the furthest from a place of honor. This is what has been drilled into them and reinforced in their spirits over and over and over again. And that's what has to be overcome on this hillside. I guess some of us had the kind of religious upbringing that made us feel like God's love for us was never in question. We came up in, in a loving and nurturing place and it was never questioned whether God's love for you was really true and real. We never had to wonder if we belonged. I grew up in that kind of place. Never had to wonder if I belonged. Never had to wonder if I was good enough. And some of us had the, the kind of identity that made it easy for us to fit in. It makes it easy uh, to believe that you belong. You have the right education. 
where you have the means to fill out a pledge card, or your sexual orientation is the accepted norm, you more or less look or believe like everybody else that is around you in your community or in your neighborhood. But there are others of us who live with sort of habitual exclusion. A sort of constant reminder that there is something about us that doesn't fit. There's something about us that leaves us on the margins of the community and that we can never assume that we belong. And I suppose that if you're told something long enough, if you're told it over and over again, if you're told it in a thousand different ways, spoken and unspoken, and it seems to actually be borne out in your life, eventually you start to believe that it is true. So I wonder if the shepherds had trouble believing that they were really being invited into what God was doing. I wonder if the greatest obstacle to them saying yes to God's invitation to go and see what was happening was that the invitation could really be for them in the first place. Some of us come to the invitation some of us come to hear the words of God, but we are not in a place, the words of assurance of God's love, but we are in, not in a place spiritually or emotionally to believe that they're true. I wonder if the shepherds were in that place when God disrupted their lives. And so the good news for us of the shepherds, yes, is that it serves as a powerful reminder about where God moves and how God moves and to whom God shows up. As the great American poet Wendell Berry wrote, quote, the most significant religious events recounted in the Bible do not occur in temples made with hands. The most important religion in that book is unorganized and is sometimes profoundly disruptive of organization. From Abraham to Jesus, the most important people are not priests, but shepherds, soldiers, property owners, workers, housewives, queens and kings, manservants and maidservants, fishermen, prisoners, whores, even bureaucrats. The great visionary encounters did not take place in temples, but in sheep pastures, in the desert, in the wilderness, on mountains, on the shores of rivers and the sea, in the middle of the sea, in prisons. Religion, according to this view, is less to be celebrated in rituals than practiced in the world. End quote. And so that God comes to the shepherds. And that the shepherds recognize the holy when they see it is a gift to those of us who live our lives wondering where and how and to whom and searching for this mysterious God that we want to, to feel at work in our lives, that we want to know is present and working in the world. You don't come to church to find God. It might be news to you. Maybe not. I think you come to church to be reminded about where God can be found so that you don't miss it in the rest of your life. Because God is found among the shepherds in all 
of the things that go along with it that I described in the beginning. The shepherds, to the extent that they represent a class, a group, an identity of people, are the first recipients of the good news. And not only that, but they are made the first messengers of the good news. And so if you want to find God now, among the excluded and undesirable is still the place to look. And maybe it is that it took folks like shepherds who are particularly attuned to creation itself, right? Whose lives are bound up in the movement of the earth and the needs of God's creatures, people whose lives afforded them the chance to be in communion with the land and the sky. How many of us, if, if God was going to disrupt the world through the midst of creation, how many of us are in enough of communion with, with creation to know that something is different? But the shepherds were in such connection with the land and sky with the ordered creation of God's universe that they were best equipped, actually, to receive the news that there had been a disruption, that that God's very self had broken through the veil between heaven and earth and taken on human flesh. And so the shepherds were alive, and they were prepared to see in ways that all of those peoples in their homes huddled around their flat screens, sleeping in comfort, perhaps were not prepared to see. So I want to close this morning with a short story reflection that was written by one of my favorite writers uh, by the name of Frederick Buechner. And he writes uh, from the first person perspective of a shepherd. And he writes about the shepherd's connection to creation and the shepherd's awe and wonder at what is happening. And he tells it in a shepherd's voice. And so without much introduction, I'm going to leave you with this. Night was coming on and it was cold, the shepherd said. And I was terribly hungry. I had finished all the bread I had in my sack and my gut still ached for more. Then I noticed my friend, a shepherd like me, about to throw away a crust he didn't want. So I said, throw the crust to me, friend. And he did throw it to me, but it landed between us in the mud where the sheep had mucked it up. But I grabbed it anyway and stuffed it, mud and all, into my mouth. And as I was eating, I suddenly saw myself. It was as if I was not only a man eating, but a man watching the man eating. And I thought, this is who I am. I am a man who eats muddy bread. And I thought, the bread is very good. And I thought, oh, and the mud is very good too. So I opened my muddy man's mouth full of bread and I yelled to my friends, by God, it's good, brothers. And they thought I was a terrible fool. But they saw what I meant. We saw everything that night, everything. 
Can I make you understand, I wonder? Have you ever had this happen to you? You've been working all day. You're dog tired, bone tired. So you call it quits for a while. You slump down under a tree or against a rock or something and just sit there in a daze for half an hour or a million years, I don't know. And all this time your eyes are wide open looking straight ahead someplace, but they're so tired and glassy they don't see a thing, nothing. You could be dead for all you notice. Then little by little you begin to come to. Then your eyes begin to come to, and all of a sudden you find out you've been looking at something the whole time, except it's only now you really see it. One of the ewe lambs, maybe, with its foot caught under a rock, or the moon scorching a hole through the clouds. It was there all the time, and you were looking at it all the time, but you didn't see it until just now. That's how it was this night, anyway. Like finally coming to. Not things coming out of nowhere that had never been seen before, but things just coming into focus that had been there always. And such things, the air wasn't just emptiness anymore. It was alive, brightness everywhere, dipping and wheeling like a hawk of birds. And what you thought, what you always thought was silence stopped being silent and turned into the beating of wings, thousands and thousands of them. Only not just wings as you came to more, but voices, high, wild, like trumpets. The words I could never remember later, but something like what I'd yelled with my mouth full of bread. By God, it's good, brothers. The crust, the mud, everything, everything. Oh, well. If you think we were out of our minds, you're right, of course. And do you know it was just like being out of jail? I can see us still. The squint-eyed one who always complained of sore feet. The little sawed-off one who could outswear a Roman. The young one who blushed like a girl. We all tore off across that muddy field like drunks at a fair, and drunk we were, crazy drunk, splashing through a sea of wings and moonlight and the silvery wool of sheep. Was it night? Was it day? Did our feet touch the ground? Shh, you'll wake up my guests, said the innkeeper. We met coming in the other direction with his arms full of wood. And when we got to the... Shed out back, one of the foreigners who was there held up a finger to his lips. At the eye of the storm, you know, there's no wind. Nothing moves. Nothing breathes. Even silence keeps silent. So hush now, hush. There he is. Do you see him? You see him? By Almighty God, brothers, open your eyes. Listen. 